Chapter Twelve of The Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Twelve. Sir Walter in London. We who are tired Londoners, tired with too much work or too much play or too much sauntering, know the effect upon us of a hearty visitor from the country. It is not always exhilarating, to be sure, if our tired feeling has gone too far, or if the visitor is unsympathetic and intent only on enjoying himself, if he takes up our time unreasonably, himself holiday-making, and insists on taking us whither we would not, then no doubt he is a nuisance. But if we like him, and he duly remembers that the life he rushes into has for us the limitations of normality, then how refreshing is his heartiness! How jolly are his ruddy face and strong voice and firm grip and zest in our common experiences! Nay, how pleasant it is merely to watch his remarkable meals! Walter Scott must have been the prince of such visitors from the country. Note, dear Scottish reader, I know he lived partly in Edinburgh, and that it was and is a great city. Still, for Londoners he came from the country and though Abbotsford was not his at the time of his first few visits, Laswade and Ashestiel were. End note. Pleasant indeed to his London friends must have been the sight of his friendly face and the sound of his friendly voice, with the northern accent which can be so charming when the northern lips obey a rich mind and a kind heart. His gaiety and bonhomie and humour must have been infectious. His interest in all that was going on, and his simple, modest pleasure in the lionising of himself must have done one good to behold. Had I, happily, been a Londoner of his acquaintance, I can imagine hardly any news it would have been more grateful to hear than that Walter Scott was in town and I was to meet him at dinner. As it is, I welcome his incursion into these pages, where the atmosphere is perforce at times a little close, as a wholesome breeze. I rejoice that in most of his visits, and the best and longest, he was housed in Piccadilly. Walter Scott came first to London at the age of four, on his way to Bath, where it was hoped, alas, in vain, that the waters might cure his lameness. It was twenty-five years before he came again, and then, he tells us, he had kept an accurate recollection of Westminster Abbey and the Tower. No doubt he tells us truly, but we whose memories begin later are apt enviously to suppose that people deceive themselves over this gift. Matt Lewis introduced him to some literary and fashionable society, says Lockhart, but gives us no names, adding only that Scott was much amused with it, not patronisingly from a superior Edinburgh standpoint, I am sure. Nor are we told where he stayed on this occasion, and so have no right to linger over it. The death of his father sadly cut it short. Four years later, in April 1803, he was established at number 15 Piccadilly West. This was a bay-fronted house at the corner of Whitehorse Street, where now stands the Junior Naval and Military Club, numbered 96 Piccadilly. It was the residence of Monsieur Charles Dumergue, an old and intimate friend of Scott's wife and her family. Scott married, if you will forgive my reminding you, Miss Charlotte Carpenter, whose mother, the widow of Jean Charpentier of Lyon, fled to England with her children at the beginning of the Revolution. 
Monsieur Dumergue was a great friend of his exiled fellow-countrymen, and befriended Madame Charpentier on this occasion with especial warmth, for he had known her and her husband well in his early days in France. I wish there were more to be said of Monsieur Charles Dumergue, who deserves record as a Piccadilly worthy, as does his sister, Miss Sophia, whom I find living at number 96, in Boyle's Court Guide, as late as 1825. But beyond the facts of his kindness and hospitality, and his being surgeon-dentist to the royal family, I fear I have nothing to say about him. But Scott made this house in Piccadilly his London home, until a child of his own was established there, and seeing that he was the last man in the world to accept favours from one he did not like, we know much to the credit of Monsieur Charles Dumergue. It must have given a cosmopolitan touch to Scott's London visits, that in this house he found an interesting French society. The time of his lionising in London dates from 1809, when he came in February and stayed two months. Marmion was out, and he was seated firmly on that poetical throne he was to occupy until Byron, with perfect good humour on both sides, displaced him. London society threw itself at him, of course. Then, as now, notoriety was the chief thing it cared for. I think, however, that its homage then was rather more of a compliment than it is now, and that Walter Scott was quite right to value it, as undoubtedly he did. It was a proof, at any rate, that his fame had reached the herd, and as a practical man who had an ardent wish, neither unnatural nor discreditable for one of his tastes and opinions, to live as a country gentleman of means, of course he valued the proof. Social success, for its own sake, he was far too shrewd to overvalue. "'It may be a pleasant gale to sail with,' he said, "'but it never yet led to a port that I should like to anchor in.' But no doubt, too, he liked the ornamental side of it. He liked titles and ancient names, which were found together a little more commonly then. Why not? It is really absurd to suppose that a man of his genius could have had a mean admiration for them, or a mean pleasure in association with them. He had a passion for historical memories, and a keen eye for the picturesque. That was all, unless we may say that his mind like Dr. Johnson's, who was of opinion that the Duchess of Newcastle may do what she pleases, leaned to fixed positions and privileges as on the whole the happiest condition for humanity. If Scott was happy in London society, London society was doubly happy in him. Its lions are so often dull dogs, who repay civility with growls or awkward pretenses of intimacy, that it must have been genuinely charmed to happen on a lion who roared when required, and as it expected. He used the familiar metaphor himself. Well, he would say to his friend Mr. Morritt, who lived in Portland Place, do you want me to play lion today? I will roar, if you like it, to your heart's content. And he roared with gusto. If people are amused, said he, with hearing me tell a parcel of old stories, or recite a pack of ballads to lovely young girls and gaping matrons, they are easily pleased, and a man would be very ill-natured who would not give pleasure so cheaply conferred. What a gay, benevolent, unaffected attitude it was! To watch a great man go through his hoops is not an ideal theory of social intercourse, 
but since one side had it how sweet and how rare it was in the other to adopt it with such simple urbanity then as the party dwindled mr morritt says and we were left alone he laughed at himself quoted yet know that i one smug the joiner am no lion fierce etc and was at once himself again what a lesson for lions was there now go forward to the spring of eighteen fifteen and watch monsieur dumergue's house in piccadilly one fine morning in april the seventh if you will be exact comes out a tall big man with a broad intellectual humane face he turns up piccadilly leaning heavily on a stick and limping a dog at his heels i am sure there was a dog though camp the bull terrier who was with him when he first stayed in piccadilly was dead he hobbles up piccadilly to albemarle street turns up it and goes in at number fifty where he has an important engagement mr murray the publisher is to make him known to byron everyone i suppose has read about that meeting and knows how quickly the poets took to one another how john murray the second then a boy remembered them stumping downstairs side by side how they met almost daily in albemarle street and talked for hours at a time and how when they had parted for the last time they exchanged gifts like the old heroes in homer as scott himself says he gave byron a turkish dagger and byron gave him a silver vase full of dead men's bones with a kind letter which scott cherished in the vase until some accursed guest or unbidden tourist stole it a meeting of heroes to be sure and i think we may easily mistake its nature for that reason fancying a solemn sort of occasion really i suspect these meetings at john murray's were hilarious neither man in my opinion would have sought them so often for intellectual or literary entertainment scott was only forty-three after all and byron only twenty-seven both had humour and a love of fun and both knew much of the world i am sure they laughed heartily they laughed scott tells us over those gloomy and ominous gifts and what the public might think of them indeed it would be very like the public not to know that only gaiety could prompt that vase of dead men's bones even at twenty-seven it is certain that they had merry-makings in general society our friend captain gronow tells us how he met them together at dinner at sir james bland burgess's in lower brook street in the autumn of this year scott was quite delightful full of fire and animation byron was in great good humour and full of boyish and even boisterous mirth even john wilson croker was agreeable on this occasion they sat late and drank a great deal of wine and walter scott recited some of his old ballads it was byron's gaiety too which most impressed scott when he saw him for what proved to be the last time at long's in bond street lunching or dining with charles matthews the comedian to help the fun and we may be sure that scott responded if they never stumped down piccadilly homewards together assuredly byron must sometimes have given scott a lift in his vis they were such near neighbours picture it stopping at ninety-six and scott turning round on the pavement with a parting joke it was during this visit to london that he made an acquaintance which with all his loyalty i hope he valued less he was presented to the regent and asked immediately afterwards to dinner at carlton house 
There is no doubt that George could do this sort of courtesy with a winning grace when he chose, and we know that he captivated Scott. He called him Walter before the evening was over, drank to the author of Waverley, and when Scott disclaimed the honour, to the author of Marmion. "'Now, Walter, my man, I have checkmated you for ain'ts,' alluding to the brutally humorous Scotch story of the judge and his old chess-playing friend in the dock, which Scott had just told him. A delightful evening, certainly, though I would rather have been at Sir James Bland Burgess's, and altogether an interesting stay in Piccadilly for Walter Scott, this of 1815. He was there in 1820, when an uproar about Sir Francis Burdett, who lived at number 80, was going forward, and he writes to his wife of the hellish, yes, literally hellish, bustle. My head turns round with it. The whole mob of the Middlesex blackguards pass through Piccadilly twice a day, and almost drive me mad with their noise and violence. He writes to James Ballantyne also, dating, by the way, from 96 Piccadilly, no longer 15 Piccadilly West. I cannot write much in this bustle of engagements, with Sir Francis's mob hollowing under the windows. I find that even this light composition demands a certain degree of silence, and I might as well live in a cotton mill. Possibly this note about the noise shows that his nerves and spirits were not quite so wonderful as they had been. That is more clearly suggested by a waning fascination of the London world and its habits. I find, he writes, I cannot bear late hours and great society as well as formerly, and yet it is a fine thing to hear politics talked of by ministers of state, and war discussed by the Duke of Wellington. He had been dining at Arbuthnot's to meet the Duke, and took his son Walter, the cornet, with him to hear the great lord in all his glory talk of war and Waterloo. Three notable things happened to him during this visit. He was made a baronet, and had his portrait done by Lawrence, and his bust by Chantry. Lawrence relates that Scott, like the Duke, chose seven in the morning for his sittings, and would talk about all sorts of subjects. At that hour, what a man! and the painter found it difficult to make him look solemn, though he used to lure him by quoting poetry at him. The Chantry business was prefaced by a characteristic incident. Chantry sent Alan Cunningham, his clerk of the works, and a poet, who had started life as a stonemason, and had walked from Nithsdale to Edinburgh for the sole purpose of seeing Scott, to ask him for a sitting, and Cunningham has left a fine impression of his hearty, genial way. It was about nine in the morning that I sent in my card to him, at Miss Dumergue's, in Piccadilly. It had not gone a minute when I heard a quick, heavy step coming, and in he came, holding out both hands, as was his custom, and saying as he pressed mine, "'Alan Cunningham, I am glad to see you.' I said something about the pleasure I felt in touching the hand that had charmed me so much. He moved his hand, and with one of his comic smiles said, "'Aye, and a big brown hand it is.' And then he put Alan at his ease, and praised his ballads, and won his heart. I think I will leave Walter Scott at this moment, at the height of his fame and happiness, talking with his devoted countryman at 96 Piccadilly. Great troubles were in store for that kind heart, as we know, the loss of his wife, and the crash of his material fortunes. We need not distress ourselves by thinking of them. They were some years off and it happened that this visit to London in 1820 was the last he spent in Piccadilly. 
only memories of kindness and joy and zest in life and a multitude of honours and interests had the bay-fronted house at the corner of whitehorse street for him and only on these need we muse as we think of him in piccadilly End of chapter 12